than normal. I want to pray just mindful of, of two things that are kind of on my radar that I think are not entirely probably unrelated. One is uh, the shooting that our state experienced uh, at MSU this last week. I think it's on all of our hearts and minds because so many students at MSU come from Michigan and from Lapeer and from our communities. Uh, some of you undoubtedly saw pictures of students wearing Oxford Strong shirts uh, on the campus of MSU, and you just thought, oh my. Uh, there's some freshmen there that are uh, just going through some really deep times. So I want to pray for our state and especially for students there at MSU. And then uh, my goal is not to make any big comment on it, but maybe you've also seen uh, some just rumors and encouraging things, I think, at, at face regarding revival at different colleges and universities. And I uh, just want to ask for the Lord to allow that to be true in the truest sense. Uh, we, we know that those things are not disconnected when we think of our country. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that when our hearts are heavy and we think not again and we see details unfolding and we think of uh, loved ones and loved ones of friends and uh, we think of some of even our own members, Father, who are a part. Uh, Father, our, our hearts are Worn and heavy, and we experience these things differently than when they're on the other side of the world. And so we do pray uh, for Michigan State University. We pray especially for those families who have been affected in such a direct way through the loss of life. Father, we pray for uh, the believers uh, there on campus in the student body and undoubtedly some even on the faculty. Father, we, we pray that you would give them strength that you'd give them uh, opportunities to show the love of Christ, to, to be present, uh, to weep with those who weep, but to also share the hope of the gospel. Father, we think especially of uh, Eli and uh, other believers there. Uh, thank you for the opportunity he has away uh, right now uh, with his college ministry to be away for a retreat and encouraging, equipping time, and then to return to just an aching campus. And I pray that you would... Use him and others to share the light and hope of Christ. Father, as we hear uh, rumors and not always clear of just you being at work in particular ways at different universities and different campuses, uh, we long for you to, to work in a mighty way in our country. We long for you to bring revival and we pray that it would begin with us. We know that revival begins with your people engaging in a fresh way with the truths of the gospel, owning their sin with a fresh honesty and bringing the healing, cleansing mercy and grace of Christ to bear. It's been said that we can know best what is revival in hindsight. It's not how high we jump, but how straight we walk when we land. And so we pray that there would be sustaining and enduring fruit and that if this is indeed a work and a moving of your spirit that it would be marked by truth and that it would spread father we thank you that we can come to your word and know that it is our true north that it can orient our hearts no matter what burdens and cares we bring even this morning and we pray that you would use the reminders from this passage the truths from this passage 
to build us up and strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I once went to a church, small church, 30 people, that had two men named Mike Thompson. It was terribly confusing. There weren't that many of us. And there were two guys named, named Mike Thompson. We called them MT1 and MT2. And both of these guys had been in the church a long time. Both of these guys loved the church. They loved the people. They were the type of people that knew the building inside and out. They knew that shut-in, and they knew the history of that person's son who married that person. And they just knew everything. They knew the people. They loved the people. They loved the Lord. They they loved the church. Uh, MT1 was the Gregorious big personality. He was often greeting people in the back. MT2 was fixing things during the week. They were opposites, but they were united in just serving this church. Mike Thompson one and Mike Thompson two. Mike Thompson one, I remember uh, this was the church that my wife and I were a part of when we lived down in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we had one car at the at the time, and my wife would would ride the bus uh, downtown to work in the morning, and and then ride it out. And uh, our car needed to go in the shop. It was a little blue Subaru that I had when I came here uh, 11, 12 years ago. And uh, Mike heard about this. And he lent us his convertible. It was so fun. Now, we lived in low-income housing, and I was a little nervous parking it. Uh, but it, it was fine. And he was just that kind of guy. He loved people. He loved the church. Uh, and, and the church grew. Uh, when we were there, it was 30 people. And then when we left, it was over 100 people. And uh, soon after, we moved up here to, to Lapeer from, from this little church. Uh, the church needed, it had really outgrown its building. The, the, the sanctuary, the auditorium only sat about 100, 150 people. It was full as we were leaving and they, and they kept growing. It had no fellowship hall, no gathering space, no gym, none of that. The, the lobby was all of that. Uh, and then there was some classrooms. And, uh, and so in the Lord's providence, the, the church, uh, moved a few miles north out of the neighborhood they were in. They were called Kenwood Baptist Church because they were in the neighborhood of Kenwood. And they left Kenwood to go to a small church that had a large building. And that church was struggling. So they were going to merge with that church and, and bring people and energy and, and revive that use of that building uh, in, in, the ministry, in the ministry there. And uh, this church, again, Kenwood Baptist, because it was near the University of Louisville and it was moving even closer to the University of Louisville and it was near a seminary and some other things, it was high turnover. So people would come for three to five years and leave. The membership was always changing. There was a few leaders that say there was a few people that maybe finished school and stuck around. But the church was changing every three to five years quite a bit. And I remember uh, when Swamy and I went back to Louisville after we had lived up here for a couple years and we visited. And uh, this is a church that a fair number of the leaders I no longer knew because they were new to the church and now in leadership. Some of the pastors I knew for sure. They were in a new building and about 60% of the membership I had never seen before in my life. It was an entirely new church. New, new space, new people, Partially new leadership, like it just felt so different. And yet, we walked up the stairs, an old old church. You, know, you walk up the, the stairs to the back, and and who's there but Mike Thompson, number one, to greet us. And he was so excited. He had been there our last Sunday at Kenwood, which was the Sunday that I was ordained, and they sent us out to come here. 
and he had prayed over me and he received us with just such joy. I mean, it was like I was his child and he was just thrilled like you're back. And, and if you remember, we arrived expecting Lily. So they had sent us off pregnant and they had never met our, our daughter. And so we came back with our daughter. It was just so much joy. And to see Mike Thompson in the back greeting new people like normal, connecting them to people, trying to learn the names of the new students and the new and just loving on that church. Though it was hard. The building wasn't the same. The neighborhood wasn't the same. The body wasn't the same. And yet he loved not the idea, not the building, but the church. He loved the people. I will never, I never forget that experience of his love on returning. This passage and is really a passage about the love of Christians for one another and for the Lord. And he continues to write about love. He's been writing about it the whole letter. Just like John's gospel, it centers on this theme of love. And that continues here. And yet in chapter 5, he's going to shift a little bit from this topic of love, which he'll talk about in verses 1 through 3, to the topic of faith, which he introduces in verse 1 and talks about for the rest of, of the chapter. And we want to consider just those two things and, and particularly two reminders Look at verse 1. I think it's something of the table of contents for chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So he's going to talk about belief. He's introducing a new topic there. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So he's going to continue talking about love, verses 1 through 3. Then at the beginning, he introduces this idea of belief, which he picks up there in verse 4. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? We're talking about love and, and belief, both introduced there in verse, in verse 1. This passage is, is in some ways just a reminder of themes we've already seen. And so I want to share two reminders. These are our two points for this morning. The first uh, comes from really verses 4 through 12, and then we'll go back up. And look at verses 1 through 3. The first reminder is this. Believe the truth about Jesus. Those who have been born again. True Christians. This is what they do. They must do. They will do. They believe the truth about Jesus. But then point number two. Be assured the loves are completely linked. Be assured the loves are completely linked. Those who have been born of God. Believe the truth about Jesus. And and know that all of these loves are linked. Well, what are these loves I'm talking about? Let me, let me remind us from last week. Maybe you remember the progression with four stops. So the first stop in the progression was God's love for us. Do you remember that? And then that scene that's made visible, how? Salvation through Christ. So how do we see God's love for sinful humanity? It's the offering of his son to pay sin's penalty that we might be redeemed. So God's love... Seen in God's love for Christ. And then we respond with our love for God. And that's seen in our love for one another. Do you remember this? So this passage, he's actually going to zoom in when we get to our second point on these second two of the four in the progression. Our love for God and our love for others. There's one more thing, connection that he wants us to see in regards to that and the word of God. We'll get there under point number two. But first, let's consider point number one. Believe the truth about Jesus. This is what those who are born again must do, will do. This is what everyone must do. 
So how do we know the truth? It kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How do we know the truth about Jesus? Well, in verses 6 through 10, he tells us it's through the Spirit's testimony. That's how we know the truth about Jesus. It's through the Holy Spirit's testimony. And what does the Holy Spirit testify? Here's my maybe summary here. The Holy Spirit testifies to the whole, all of Jesus's ministry. In just a minute, I'm going to reread verses 6, 7, and 8. And before I do, I want to make two comments. One, this is a really difficult passage to interpret. It's hard to know what John means. It's difficult. You may have questions for me after that I won't have answers to. It's a difficult passage. Christians haven't agreed on this. Secondly, everyone, or just about everyone, agrees that that John is actually going to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy, and he's drawing from a principle that was established in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, it's true in our day today, day today, which is every witness, every testimony should be verified by two or three, right? So here's the, the way that we often word it. Every charge must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So... Moses in Deuteronomy 17, applying it to the death penalty, writes, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So just verifying. Things have to line up, right? It's that principle. Let's read now verses 6 through 8, and we'll try to make sense of the Spirit's testimony here. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. What is clear from our passage. It's going to begin there, isn't it? What is clear? There's a lot that's unclear, but let's begin with what's clear. John is saying Jesus came by water and blood. And then he emphasized it wasn't by water only. Still don't know what that means, but that much is clear. He's, he's emphasizing that. The Spirit testifies, I think the implication is, to this, that Jesus came by water and the blood Because the Spirit is the truth. So the Spirit tells the truth about Jesus. So if someone says, I know the truth about Jesus and disagrees with what the Spirit says about Jesus, John is saying, that person's a false teacher. They disagree with the testimony of the Spirit. You can't have the Spirit, claim to have the Spirit, claim to be a teacher on behalf of Christianity and disagree with one of its tenets. That's the payoff. That's where he's going. Another thing that's clear there's these three witnesses, not just one, and they, and they are in agreement. So this claim about Jesus, and we aren't even quite sure what he's claiming about Jesus yet, has been confirmed by two or three witnesses. So it passes this, this principle of every charge must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So this leads to the question, okay, what does John mean by the water and the blood? What, what is he referring to? I think I would summarize it this way. The spirit testifies to the whole ministry of Jesus. Why do I say that? I'm not going to give you all the ways people have sought to understand this, but I think the water likely refers to Jesus's baptism. So this is at the beginning of his ministry. 
He was baptized by John, not this John, but John, John the Baptist. And you may remember the role of the spirit descending like a dove and even the confirmation of his identity there. Right. There was a true testimony there. But then he says the blood. And I think this refers to Jesus's death on the cross. Right. Paying the penalty for our sins. He shed his blood on the cross for our sins. So John is using events at the beginning and at the end of Jesus's ministry to refer to the whole of Jesus's ministry. So the same spirit who witnesses to the truth in the church after the resurrection in believers, like we'll see down in verse 10, is the same spirit who witnessed Jesus's baptism and his death. Now, the challenge is we don't know what the false teachers were teaching. Perhaps they were saying that, okay, we we believe in Jesus's baptism, but not his his death. So they're fine with water, but not with the blood. So John emphasizes in verse 6, no, he came by both. Both are essential, affirming all of his ministry, all of his person, his work, his humanity, his deity. The Spirit testifies to the whole ministry of Jesus. So, John then presses the point further in verse 9. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. All right. John said, okay, you, you know this. You live like this, right? There's all sorts of things that you believe. If I, if I see one of you after church today and you say, hey, pastor, I wanted to mention that I saw Cindy at Meyer this last week. I wouldn't think, I don't believe you. I wouldn't probably think, ah, two or three witnesses. I would probably think you saw Cindy at Meyer this last week. I I mean, I just would. We live our lives receiving the testimony of men without questioning. Now, again, there's times where we do in our judicial system, we question a witness and that kind of thing. But he's saying, man, this is a greater testimony than the testimonies you receive all the time from people. This is a testimony... By God's spirit regarding his son. Those everyday testimonies from other people are received by you all the time. So his point is the spirit's testimony to the whole work of Jesus is greater, more solid, more assuredly true than these kind of everyday ones that you base your life on. Of course, we have that testimony recorded for us by the Spirit in the Word of God. And it's confirmed in us by the work, inward work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. John verse 10 point pushes it just a little bit further. He says, okay, if you don't receive the testimony, you are implying that God is lying. <laughs> right? Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself, this inward work of the Spirit, bearing witness. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. What an indictment. To not trust his word, to not trust the Spirit's testimony, to call it into question is to make God himself a liar. He continues the end of verse 10, because... He has not, that is, that individual has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Let me encourage you. If you're 
not ready to call God a liar, but not sure if you receive the testimony of the Spirit regarding Jesus Christ, to just spend some time this week reading in the Gospels, and especially the end of the four Gospels. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're at the beginning of the second part of our Bible. It's called the New Testament. Or consider a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, where we have the Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus. And Paul even goes so far to say, hey, this is, this is what happened. And there were witnesses. And it was prophesied about. Consider the Spirit's testimony. Even this week. Don't fail to believe this one that is more sure. Well, let's get to the, the rub of it. If point one is believe the truth about Jesus, we've talked about, okay, how does that come to us but then what is it what is the truth about jesus that we must believe we've talked about this a lot in the letter but notice where we have it in our passage here again in verse one whoever everyone who believes that jesus is the christ that he is the anointed one the sent one go go down to verse five it's it's the truth that jesus is the son of god that is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten, not made, took on flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, then died in our place for our sins, was buried, and then three days later was raised from the dead, Seen by many and then ascended into heaven and will return to judge all. That is what we must believe. That he is fully man, yes, but fully God. Truly God and truly man. Jesus' sinless life and sin-bearing, penalty-paying death and victorious resurrection are they're absolutely unique events in all of history. And they make claims on us still today. And John drives this point home in verses 11 and 12. If you say, Pastor, I'm not really following you. Let me say two things. One, 1 John is one of the most difficult books to, to get the structure of, to outline. And, and this week was no exception for me. So these, these points, I was on the struggle bus till pretty late yesterday, I have to admit. Trying to figure out how am I going to teach this? Well, how does this hold together? So bear with me. But then the other thing I'll say is, if you're going to pay attention, pay attention now. Look at verses 11 and 12. There's no dispute here. We know what he's saying. This is the testimony. Oh, finally. Thank you. We were wanting you to define it. John says, here it is. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Do you see that? It's a gift. It's by grace alone. And this life is in his son, he says at the end of verse 11. Look at verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Eternal life is a gift from God and it's found only in and through Jesus Christ. So if you have the son by faith, if you're trusting in him, you have eternal life. If you do not, if you are not, you do not have life. John would say elsewhere, John 3, that the wrath of God remains on you. Jesus can say in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. Not a way, the way. And then Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
John is echoing the words of Jesus. This was Jesus' claim. This is confirmed by the apostles. He is the only way. So your righteousness won't get you to God. Your best efforts aren't going to be enough. Not nearly enough. Good intentions. Being religious. Your morality. Your church attendance. Faithful Bible reading. Nothing you can bring can earn you eternal life. It is a gift that you must receive by faith. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It is a gift. It is by grace alone. And it is by faith alone. We trust in Christ. We don't faith plus effort. No, it's, it's faith alone. He's done the work. Jesus said it is finished. It is by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone. John is saying to the false teachers, you can't deny some of the Spirit's testimony and have life. You can't deny his humanity and have life. You can't deny his deity and have life. But you can believe the truth about Jesus and know this promise. In Jesus, you have eternal life. If you've never trusted in Christ alone to bear the Father's wrath against you, his just wrath against you and your sin, and to give you eternal life, you can today. You can now, even while I continue. Talk to him. Ask him to save you, rescue you. What is the result of this? Well, one way that he puts it is back in verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. He says, for everyone who is born born of God overcomes the world. What a result. Overcomes the world. And in verse, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I thought of Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Maybe you remember uh, the old hymn, faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. What a powerful way for John to encourage these believers and remind them to believe the truth about Jesus. Point number two, be assured the loves are completely linked. Be assured the loves are completely linked. Remember our progression again, right? We have God's love, salvation in Jesus, our love for God, our love for others. And here we're talking about our love for God and our love for others. These are completely linked. You cannot have one without the other. And he goes out of his way at the end of verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5 here to make that point. So in verse 1 he says, love for others... Is an expression of love for God. So love for God is made visible by loving other Christians. But then in verse 2, he does what we don't expect him to do. He says love for God is how fellow Christians, how love for fellow Christians is known. Look at verse 2. By this we know the love of, uh, sorry, by this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know that we love the children of God? He says, when we love God. Isn't that fascinating? So love for others confirms love for God and love for God confirms love for others. What? Like that's a circle, isn't it? 
And, and again, we can say, well, what is he saying? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I got the first point. Like, we love God and we show that by loving others. And he talked about this in chapter four. You can't see God, but you can see others. So one evidence that you, one evidence that you, you love a God you can't see is that you love people that you can see. That all makes sense to me. But when he flips it on its head in verse two, I just think, I, I don't know. What about last week's sermon? Like, is that a wash? Like, what, what, what's going on here? His point isn't logic, order, and his point is these things, you cannot have one without the other. You can't have in without out or up without down or zig without zag, right? You, you just you go together. You've got to have them both. It's like this is the right wing on the plane. You've got to have the left wing, right? These go together. Love for others, biblically understood, shows that you love God. And loving God will be seen by loving others. They, they, they go together. Always. They're, they cannot be separated. We, we shouldn't try and we can't. I think, I think that's what he's getting at. But then he goes a step further in verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And... Keep his commandments. So how else are these two loves, love for God, love for others, linked? This is what he says. Obeying God's word shows and grows love for God and love for Christians. Obeying God's word shows and grows love for God and love for other Christians. So obedience to God's word in the Bible is how love for other Christians is, is known and fostered and shaped and sustained. And obedience to the Bible is how love for God is known and fostered and shaped and sustained. Let me ask two kind of applications. Okay. What about when I just don't, I just don't like those people, <laughs> Right. I, I'm struggling. My, my, my love for them is, is low. I, I, I'm, I don't love them much, at least not right now. What would our passage encourage us to do when that describes us, as it sometimes does? Well, first, I look to the testimony. I believe the truth about Jesus and I remind myself of God's love for me through Christ. I go back to the beginning of the progression. I start with the cross. And then I look to the commands God has given to his people. And I obey his commands to love others. I do the next right thing and I choose to love. I allow scripture to foster and shape and sustain my love when my desires wane. And so I trust God and I obey in love. All right. Maybe some would be so honest as to say, what do I do when I don't love God much? When my love for him is actually the issue. When my love grows cold What do I do when I can't pray like I'd like to? I think our passage would say, first, you look to the testimony. You believe the truth about Jesus. 
You remind yourself of God's love for you through Christ. The first two stops in the progression. God's love as seen in salvation through Christ. You start with the cross and then you look to the commands that God has given his people to to respond in love. Augustine wrote. So anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them. But cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in understanding them. So we as Christians need to learn that obeying the Bible, God's word shows and grows love for him and love for other Christians. So if we think we're loving God and loving others, but we are not obeying the Bible, we we are not loving them as we should as we are required so love for god and others will show by obedience to what god has said the bible will shape our loves inform our loves mature our loves sustain our loves so it isn't surprising when we want to end here verse 3 that john can say and his commands are not burdensome When you love God and when you love others, that's the context. His commands are not burdensome. Oh, don't we need this word today? Oh, man. Uh, I think probably in every age, but I think especially we feel it today in our culture, in this cultural moment. It can really, really feel like God's commands, God's rules are harsh and restrictive or judgmental they feel like a lot of things but not necessarily love we we can be tempted to kind of apologize for god's expectations for others maybe especially in the area of of sexuality it cuts too directly across the grain of our desires or or the culture's desires But friends, we must remind ourselves of what we saw last week. God is love. And so his commands are loving. And so, of course, commands from a loving God are going to ultimately foster foster love. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Maybe you recall, and if you don't, I'm certainly not offended. But about eight years ago, we studied the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 20, we marched our way in and we came to what's known as the Ten Commandments. You probably are all somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments. And and in the Ten Commandments, often it's said that the first four are kind of focused on God and the last six or so, there's kind of a transition one there, are are focused on, on others. And I think one helpful way to think about the Ten Commandments is that they are there to protect love for God and love for others. So especially think of the, of the latter six, maybe more obvious with these. So you can, you can not murder someone and not love them, right? <laughs> but not murdering them is a prerequisite to have the opportunity to love them, right? You have to value their life, right? You can say, well, I, I've never stolen from you. And that doesn't mean you love the person. It just means you haven't stolen from them. But not stealing from others is is kind of like fencing that protects a space out of which we can grow in love for them. So that even the Ten Commandments 
are, are all about these double loves, aren't they? Love for God and, and love for neighbor. So, the culture looks at the Bible and sees fences or maybe even barriers. And yet we want to see these fences are there as God's wise protection to guide us into these two loves. Love for him. And love for others, that we might do those things well, that we might do those things in ways that are truly loving, not just well-intended, or just simply what that person wants in that moment. We're able to truly love, because we have instruction as to how to love. God's commands are not burdensome when we've been born of God, verse 1. When we have new and changing desires, when we're seeking to love God and love others. God's commands are never in the way of those two. If you say, I want to love God and I want to love others, God's commands are not going to be in the way. They're going to be guiding you and protecting so that you can do those things and do them well and do them wisely. To seek freedom from God's commands because they seem burdensome is to seek a freedom that is not freeing. We've used this illustration before. Imagine... And for some of you, this will take quite a bit of imagination. But imagine you're going to go skydiving. So you get in the little plane, and you, you're, gonna, you're at the little airport, and you start going up. And now, let's imagine, in our first example, that you're going to jump out of the plane without a parachute. Ooh, this just got exciting, didn't it? You are in, you're in free fall. Are you free? I don't think so. I mean, in a sense you are, but you're probably not enjoying it. If you're aware you don't have a parachute on. Now, if you think you do, that would be really something's going on there. That's awful. Let's not think about that. But you can't enjoy the experience because you're not free. You're in grave danger. It's not freedom. But now let's imagine you wanted to go skydiving and you get in and you get up and you have a parachute and you're free falling. That's freedom. You can enjoy it because you know you have a parachute. You have that protection. The parachute isn't a burden. You're not thinking, oh man, I'd be more aerodynamic if I didn't have this. You're thinking, no, I can enjoy this because I have this. It frees you to jump out of planes, or at least some people, with joy, right? God's commands in the life of a Christian, provide that kind of freedom. The freedom of the parachute. They're not burdensome. They're not barriers. They're kind fences. They protect us. So that we can do what we want to do as his children. Which is love him and love those whom he has loved. That's what we do. If we've been born of him. And so his commands free us to enjoy him and to express that joy and love to him and love to others. Friends, his commands are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is life in Jesus. Life, abundant life, life to the fullest. And yet we admit that so often we seek freedom from rather than freedom through. We reject your good design, and so often we seek to design our own life, define love our own way. Help us to remember that you are love 
and that you define love and that you've shown your love through the sacrifice of your son on the cross for our sins so that we might respond in love to you and to our neighbor. We thank you that you've shown us how we might do this wisely through your word. And we thank you as your word guides us into greater love for you and greater love for others. We thank you that its commands are not burdensome. We ask now that you would receive our worship as we continue now in song in Christ's name.